0: Generation Topic, a podcast by the Osteology Foundation. Dear friends, dear colleagues, um, welcome to another Osteology Foundation event. Um, We're here today uh, to open a new theme on uh, our current older generation topic. Our spotlight uh, focus today is gonna to be sinus augmentation and uh, we're very pl- privileged to have a special guest today, uh, Professor Bjarni Peterson from Iceland, uh, who's gonna discuss with us uh, one of the um, key publications, uh, which was part of a consensus report back in 2008. Um, so just a few introductory points. Uh, Professor Bjarni Peterson is uh, currently the Vice Team Um, of the dental school of the University of Iceland. Uh, He is the professor and head of the reconstructive um, uh, division department of the school. And uh, he's very well known uh, in the field of implantology. Uh, He's double qualified both Imperium and PROS uh, from the University of Bern in Switzerland. And where to complete also his ITI scholarship. And um, I would like to welcome him today uh, who has made uh, time just to be with us around his busy schedule. Thank you.
1: So thank you, Nikos, for the kind introduction. At the moment, I am uh, I'm in Geneva, not in Iceland. It's nice to be in Geneva. The sun is shining and the weather is great. And we have almost like Icelandic summer, even though the Swiss people consider this to be cold. For me, it's, uh, it's great. Back in Iceland, we still have snowstorms and, and and different issues. But no, I think we are not going to talk about the weather, you know, for the whole interview. So, but thank you for the kind introduction. Nice to be with you.
0: Thank you, thank you for for being part of this uh, of this project. And it's obviously when we look at those articles and when we look at your uh, contribution in the literature, it's difficult not to identify your name um, in those consensus reports. And uh, I relate uh, actually uh, with this consensus back in 2008, because that was exactly when I started my special training at the University of Michigan. So um, all the proceedings of the European workshop were part of my um, literature list I had to go through. So quite a few interesting topics back then. Um, I have to say that you have also contributed massively on the topic because you are one of the authors of the uh, Science Augmentation chapter at the Lindy textbook along with another dear friend, uh, Dr. Gustavo Avila Ortiz. So it is, we're really looking forward to dig a little bit in the past with your experience and then uh, look at that publication and how things have moved forward uh, since then. So starting with this, would you like to give us a little bit of history of your background, your involvement in that design and then anything that you would like to share with us from that period?
1: Yeah, maybe first, my personal background. I graduated uh, like as a dentist from the dental school in Iceland in 1990. First, I was a, a private practitioner for 10 years. And it's quite interesting if you are a busy private practitioner, you, you at some time point, you really feel the urgent need to move on and and I was, because as a private practitioner, you you make a lot of decision based on your, basically your uh, gut feeling. And so when we started to talk about evidence-based approach and evidence-based treatment planning, it was so interesting to me. And I, I was convinced that we could go like for pure evidence-based treatment planning. But unfortunately over the years, we have seen that, of course, we can use this approach to help us, you know, make decisions. But the, we cannot really—it's difficult to practice like pure evidence-based uh, dentistry because we still we are still lacking quite a bit of information. But like uh, after t- two, uh, ten years in private practice, I went to Bern, Switzerland. And originally I was planning to do prosthetic training, but uh, because I started working with implants back in 94. So at that time, uh, implants were like implant surgery, bone augmentations, and and those things were not really part of prosthetic training. So I switched over to perio and I started the perio training. And there I, I... got a, uh, more into this uh, bone augmentation procedures, sinus grafting and so on. And sometimes people like when I meet friends, they think because I've done a lot of those meta-analysis that I am basically a statistician, but I would, I, I consider myself to be much more a clinician than a statistician. I, I treat patients three days a week, very busy private clinic and, uh, but you know, It's uh, nice to know a little bit about statistics. It helps a lot, but I I would consider myself to be more a clinician than a a statistician, even though I've done a lot of those systematic review on the the meta-analysis. They are my way a little bit to contribute to be more evidence-based in our treatment
0: planning. That's right. So it was around that time of your um, studying and your academic uh, development at the University of Bern where you were invited to uh, conduct that systematic review on the survival of implants uh, following lateral uh, sinus augmentation procedures. Um, do you recall, first of all, your first sinus augmentation procedure? It's a thing, it's a procedure you never forget as a clinician.
1: Yeah. I. I was lecturing here in Geneva on the topic last week for for the postgraduate, so I had to refresh my memory a little bit then. Uh, So the the first sinus augmentation I did was a transalveolar approach, it was not a lateral approach, and that was back in 1999, so it's already 23 years. And then for about four years, I, I, I was trying to solve everything with this approach, with the transalveolar approach. And then, of course, you realize that you are a little bit limited if you only if you only have one way to do things. So now, since two thousand and three, so we talk about nineteen years, I have also been doing the, the lateral approach. So. Basically today, I just use the approach that gives me good outcome and is is easier, the easier approach for me and the patient, because sometimes when we talk about sinus grafting, we we meet colleagues that are maybe, they are trained to do the, the, the lateral window approach, and then everything has to go that way, or they are like I was the first year, they are trained to Augment the sinus through the alveolar process, like the trans, trans-alveolar approach, then that is the way to go. And if you are limited to one technique, I think maybe you're not really the, the, the best, best person to, to comment on how to do things, because you, you try to put everything in, in basically in your field of expertise. And so we are now for 19 years I have have, uh, basically, I have the whole armamentarium, what to do. But if we go back, if you go back to those years, like when I started placing implants, do you know what was the shortest implants you could consider in the maxilla? That was at that time, Uh, it was uh, when we were using the machine surface, a traditional bronomark implant, like, you know, it was forbidden to think about anything shorter than 11 millimeters in the maxilla. So it basically means that if you have seven, eight millimeters residual bone height, you, you still have to augment the sinuses. And, uh, and then we started to have studies like from Gears and from others that showed that the residual bone height of course, is a very important issue when it comes to the outcome. And when we were invited to do this uh, systematic review and the meta-analysis, then the landmark publication at that time was the systematic review from Stuart and uh, Fromm from 2003. And the limitation of that uh, systematic review is that they didn't really look into the residual bone height.
0: Exactly. I think that's a very, very good uh, uh, pass for me because I I put that in my my notes that you really set that threshold, that cutoff of up to six millimeters to consider uh, applying this procedure. Therefore, you were looking uh, for studies that use that cutoff. However, obviously, yes. Yeah, I think like uh, we
1: decided like If you have more than six millimeter residual bone, you basically maybe can only work with short implants or you can do the transalveolar approach. So we put this as a, a cutoff. If the studies did not report the residual bone height, then they were not included. Or if they reported more than six millimeters mean residual bone height, they were also excluded. But we were quite proud, like in in this review, that we didn't have any language restriction. So we had studies published in France, and I think there was one in Chinese even. And because at that moment, at uh, Professor Lang's department in Bern, we spoke uh, when everything was counted together, the the people in the department they spoke 25 languages. So it was an extremely international atmosphere, and so we we. We felt proud that we could, you know, include everything in in this uh, review or this systematic review.
0: And it was really nice, as you said, because uh, with one search strategy, essentially we produced two publications, and correct me if I'm wrong, one looking at the lateral augmentation, which is our focus today, and the other one uh, where you're also co-authoring, we looked at the transalveolar approach. And and, and definitely took the, the lead from the previous publication of two thousand three uh, by uh, Wallace and Froome. Um, and you sort of confirmed if you look at the results, uh, most of the most of the findings that, that they had reported as well. You talked you talked a little bit about the the study design and then all the process of conducting a systematic review, and obviously you're an expert on systematic review and meta analysis. Um, if you were to redesign, for example, the same study today with the limitations that we know we have in the uh, in the literature, would you do anything different from a totally academic perspective? Um, uh, from in terms of collecting the evidence, uh, uh, filtering the evidence, and the results.
1: Yeah, I would. I would definitely uh, make one change uh, that. What we, what we did like in the beginning, we included uh, both retrospective and prospective studies. And, uh, and then we usually analyzed them separately. And then when we saw the outcome was not significantly different, then we published the outcome of both. Today, when we are doing meta-analysis, we really try to stay at the highest level possible and uh, and in this case when you're basically evaluating the outcome of the implant and grafted sinuses then i would only include prospective studies what i when i was trained to do systematic reviews i was basically the first uh, consensus meeting of the european academy of of periodontology that was in 2001 we did the, the meta analysis for the sinuses. we did it for the second one that was then a little bit later and uh, at that time we were trained and it basically it was very simple if you have evidence on the highest evidence level like if you have good rcts uh, looking at your focus question you just stay at that level if you but sometimes today we, we see people there including like a lot of levels of evidence in their meta analysis. So then the second level would be the prospective cohort studies. And today we have a lot of good prospective studies on uh, Sinus for elevation. So definitely, I think one of the major changes we would do is not to include retrospective studies. And then uh, the material is definitely is going to be stronger. That's the first thing we do. Then the second thing you always have to think about is: it should we, for example, exclude machine surface implants because we don't we are not using them anymore, or should we include them in a separate group? We we did we analyzed the material, the whole material, and then just the rough surface implants. And most probably, the most significant outcome of our meta-analysis was that uh, the implant surface is a major factor in the outcome. There was like a, a highly significant difference. So I would definitely, you know, only work on the uh, level of prospective study, and I would I would give it a serious thought whether to only go for a rough surface implants.
0: Yes, I think that's, uh, that's, that's an excellent point because uh, as you said, things have, have evolved and um, the, the surface of the implant has played a significant role in changing the, the survival because that study specifically looked at the survival of implants over the short uh, term and medium term. And, and this is one of the limitations we have as um, uh, investigators that we don't really see long-term, long-term studies. Yes. That is one of the um, other points we could bring just by looking at this publication, as well as future publications. So there are been systematic reviews following this, but if you look at long-term data, we have very, very limited uh, uh, sources of information. Only a few studies maybe passed the you know the mark of six years or reached the ten-year ten-year uh, mark. Um, I think. A few other interesting points from that study is um, the use of the membrane over the window, which is another uh, topic for discussion. And I know you're you're smiling now, Um, uh, which has been debated in the past, um, both in terms of the survival. Um, Other studies have looked at the margin bone levels of the implants as well. And of course, the type of the uh, bone graft. First of all, to graft or not to graft in the sinus, Uh, because there have been reports that looked into that. Uh, and also the the type of the bone graft, the source, the composition. What are the views on on that? Uh,
1: So uh, we already have now four topics to discuss. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So uh, should we start with the membrane? Sure. Cover the window with a membrane or not. So we concluded. in our meta-analysis, that uh, the outcome of uh, or the survival of the implants were better if we co- if you covered the access window with a membrane, that was a significantly better outcome. But they, they could because this was the analysis was done for the entire material. We did not really look into whether there were more uh, machine surface implants in one group or the other group because that that might have been a co- confounding factor. But uh, now the question is, have you had to operate cases where someone made, or, or yourself, made the access window to you know, elevate the Sniderian membrane, and then they aborted the procedure because of perforations or something, and then you go back Usually we would go back six months later uh, to, to to redo the procedure. I, I've had this situation three times, and when you <clears throat> when you go back in and you you made a window, and if you did if you did nothing to really close the window or cover the window, what will you see when you go in the second time?
0: You see invagination of the of the soft tissue in the area, so partial wind node the side
1: exactly you will you will almost see the soft tissue growing into the sinus like a ligament yes. so you, you can raise the flap. you have to cut it to, oh, to so
0: raise
1: the and then you then you have to go in so at least you will know if you leave a hole there the soft tissue is going to grow into it and i always remember i was i was chairing a, a session at the EAO meeting in glasgow it must be like 10 years ago now or even more and there was this uh, colleague from China and she presented a, a research uh, topic. They had had 30 cases where they started to do sinus crafting, like uh, made the access window, and then they had to abort the procedure. And they went in like uh, we were discussing half a year later. And for every single case, they had the same situation. The soft tissue grows into the sinus. So in my mind, if you do not do something to block out the soft tissue, it's going to grow into, into the sinus cavity. Okay, now we have two options. We can block it out with a membrane. Then we we have several studies that the membrane will will be able to block out the connective tissue. You can also most probably put back, you know, the bony plate, if you take you this, it plate. and you, you put it back then the risk is whether it's going to be mobile or whether it's going to stick to the, to the surface. Then most probably you, are, you have been able to block the soft tissue for growing in there. But then the issue is if you, if you have a sinus full of crafting material and you don't do anything to block the soft tissue to grow into your grafting materials. I, so I, in my mind, it's, it's really clear that you need to do something to block the connective tissue from growing into the empty sinuses or into the grafting material. So I'm very strong on that opinion that, based on our outcome, based on studies from Tarno, from from, from others that have looked at the percentage of, of uh, newly formed bone in the sinuses, based on the experience from China, based on my own experience, that you need to cover the access window.
0: As, as you mentioned, the, the results of your study were strikingly in favor of using a, um, a membrane over the, over the access window compared to not using the membrane. Obviously, one would argue that, as you said, there are many confounding factors in the process. Uh, the dimension of the actual sinus, the type of the bone graft that you may be using, the the, the dimension of the reads, whether you perform at the same time simultaneous augmentation procedure, lateral augmentation, which was excluded though in most of the science studies um, uh, as a criterion. Um, but I think that the, the, the com- most common practice nowadays is to, to use a layer of, of um, miserable membrane over the access window just for that, uh, for that purpose. And when it comes to the second question about the bone grafts, the type of the bone replacement graft with or without bone and what type of bone?
1: Yeah, first, I think we have to take the discussion about doing this without any grafting. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That's uh, Stefan's Lundgren approach, for example. Stefan, he is a great guy. And he told me once when we were lecturing together that how he got the idea he basically, he was, he was going in and he was doing uh, the lateral approach. He was elevating this nigerian membrane. And there was this uh, relatively big tear of the membrane, like a perforation. So he took the membrane, uh, mobilized it, and sutured it against the, you know, the cortical bone on the lateral wall. So just to fix it, so basically closing the membrane suturing. That is quite a tricky business to do and uh, and then he, he said like half a year later, he went in and he was going to place his implants, and then where he expected to have a, like an empty space, it was full of bone because he had basically fixed the membrane maybe a centimeter or one and a half centimeters away from the, the lowest part of the sinus. So proof of principle that this is possible, but uh, the first study they published on this technique that was elegant there the uh, residual bone height on average was seven millimeters so it's basically we cannot really say something about it but then they have published studies with with, with much less residual bone but when i look at his cases you know, he is using uh a certain type of grafting material. But we don't call it grafting material because it's titanium. Because if he has like no teeth, for example, distal to the canine, how many implants is he going to place? He's most probably, he's going to place four implants. So there is an implant, and there is an implant, and there is an implant, and there is an implant. And so the titanium is the sinus. so, nigerian membrane is basically kept up with titanium so tenting
0: screw like a tenting screw projecting into the sinus yes. yeah.
1: so where we would most probably put two implants and grafting material he, he places four implants and no grafting material so okay we know as proof of principle if you maintain the space for the bone and you keep the soft tissue out then you you will have bone growing in there so but I think I would never really, I would not favor this approach. I would, uh, I would always use use grafting materials instead of uh, four implants. So, but we have to at least admit that uh, as proof of principle that if this works. If you, if you have, can keep this nitaria membrane up there, and you have no risk of it's going down between the implants or down in, in the area. And you have blood coaculum and you have staple implants, then you will definitely have new bone formation. Uh, it looks a bit strange on the x-ray anyhow, but still.
0: It can work in that respect. Obviously, again, this is not the the standard practice that you see when you perform a lateral augmentation procedure. And in the past, uh, and you have researched on that, autogenous bone was considered the gold standard, uh, looking at possibly histological or morphedric outcomes. But at the end of the day, we're looking at clinical outcomes because this is what we're also interested in. Uh, And then we switched to substitutes and substitutes of different kinds. And the results from the from your systematic review which also confirm uh, the results of other systematic reviews is that there's not much difference uh, when it comes to the type of material we use would you like to comment on that a little bit
1: yes because like when i was starting to do for elevation like the the lateral approach it was really considered to be the way to go is to use like pure autogenous bone and that is for big sinuses mm-hmm. it's challenging then you have to go usually extra orally to get that volume because intraorally you can of course get quite a bit but sometimes not enough and then was the the issue of the resorption of the autogenous bone so you might even have done a hip graft or, or and, and then half of the graft was gone when you looked at this uh, one year later and i remember at that time in Bern, there was like the first floor was was uh, professor buser and that was the torturous bone floor And then we went up to the second floor the period department with professor lang we were using more uh, bone substitutes or, or and then at that time when people were using like three calcium phosphate grafting materials because they want to get rid of the grafting materials but today i think everyone agrees that whether it's sinus grafting or lateral bone augmentation or whatever we are we are grafting to get volume and if you are able to maintain the volume better with uh, bone substitutes or inst- that an autogenous bone, I, I I really don't care whether I have some bone substitute in my graft twenty years down the road if it m- maintains the volume for me. So, in my mind, it uh, to to graft like with pure autogenous bone. Uh, doesn't make so much sense it speeds up the procedure but you you will have much more resorption so you need to take the best of both worlds so like we are we are basically for all those years I have been doing I'm following a little bit the old study from Halman if you remember that one from 2002 and he, he had the, the, the three groups, uh, the bone substitute alone, then the group with uh, about 20, 20 to 30% autogenous bone mixture, and then the pure autogenous bone. And just by adding this uh, 20, 30% autogenous bone, he was speeding up the procedure a lot. And I have all those years just followed, more or less, uh, this approach. So I, I mix, and I most probably the ratio is uh, one part totinus bone versus three parts grafting uh, material. And I think it's all about how how long are you prepared to wait until you load your implants or place your
0: implants. I think it's an excellent point. Um. We know from evidence and from other studies that have looked at specifically the healing process and histo- histological histomorphometric outcomes that the addition of autogenous bone it speeds up the process. Uh, maybe in the first five months, for example. You wait longer, maybe there's no difference um, when it comes to the to the composition. Um, but the 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 other question that remains is: are we really also concerned about the, the quality of the bone long-term and how that bone, and we have the same question when it comes to conventional GBR procedures. Uh, how will that bone behave in an inflammatory environment? Because we looked and we're always optimistic about our procedures, but the reality is that the more implants we place, the more we see that epidemic of perimplantitis. And we see that both in native sites and in augmented sites. And that includes the sinus as well. Uh, so I think this is an interesting also point to discuss based on your experience. Do you see, do you see the, a faster progression rate of that type of disease uh, in augmented sinuses depending on the type of material that has been used? Um, what is your view on that?
1: So this is a very difficult question. Could you maybe just move it to the next interview? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I don't think there's an answer at this at this point. Right? Even in, even the classic pre-implantitis uh, studies that we're looking at experimentally, uh, we don't have conclusive data. Imagine uh, imagine the sinus, but that's that's purely, I think, based on personal experiences uh, we, we encountered the clinic. we, uh,
1: if if we if I can, maybe comment a little bit on the on the time factor. Because when I was in Bern, I, I was sharing office with uh, Professor Borsart, who he's doing all the histological uh, uh, evaluations for for the departments in Bern. So we were, you know, experimenting like a little bit. The two of us, just on my cases. So with this mixture, we I did I waited like six. I started waiting like eight, nine months, and then I moved down to six months. I moved down to four months. And, and Dieter was doing histological slides of the cases, and, and then when I was down to four, I went back up to six. So if I, I'm doing two states with this mixture, I, I wait six months. But I have to say, when you look at this bone in, in the beautiful hist- histological slides from, from Dieter, you you almost feel that the bone with those particles very well embedded in in the in the in the augmented bone you have the feeling that this bone might be even stronger than the residual bone because there is much more soft tissue in the residual bone so when it just comes to the strength of the augmented bone I, I just looking at the structure of it uh, from a histological point of view, I'm convinced that this is also a very, very strong bone. But the question was not about the strength of the bone, it was about uh, how resistant it is to infection. I uh, have not really just the personal experience seen that we are struggling more with peering around the implants we place in grafted sinuses so that's not an issue, but then there is another issue if we are allowed to go a little bit away from the sinus for two, three minutes. Of
0: course.
1: Because we, we, we did a multi-center study uh, with Mario Sanz some years ago. And, and, other, and Professor Linte, he was the principal investigator, where we did 100 immediate implants. So extracted teeth in the aesthetic area placing implants and no grafting so no grafting so because at that time we believed that if you had less than two millimeter yeah. space from the implant to the surface it's going to be spontaneously filled with the new bone and when you look at the outcome unfortunately, fortunately everything in that study was presented as mean values so you cannot see exactly what happens for every single case. But the mean bone fill, even though the gaps were on average uh, two millimeters, the mean bone fill that we would expect to be close to 100% because the dogma was if it's two millimeters and less it's going to be filled. The mean bone fill was only 70%. And if you think about the dogma: Okay, this is going to be filled automatically. This small gap, and you only have seventy percent fill, as an average fill. So there are a lot of cases when we, when we are doing immediate implants and so on, and we are leaving those gaps, and we expect them to they to really fill with bone. So I think we are we have a lot of cases where we are doing immediate placement, where basically after half a year we have already have a vertical defect. And at least around teeth, we don't like vertical defects. So I think this is something we should consider. And I, after we we saw the outcome of this study, I, I'm doing much more augmentations around those implants, especially in the aesthetic area, not really relying on the dogma of two millimeters gap is going to be spontaneously filled. So, I would at least you know this is my contribution to the peer implantitis uh, discussion, and I cannot comment on on it in sinuses. But I think we should be a bit careful about not uh, relying on all those uh, defects that we leave out the must to be spontaneously filled with new bone. So now we can go back to the sinuses.
0: So I so I, I, take, I take your point where you, you like to mix some autogenous uh, on the base that you also want to speed up the healing process. Uh, what is your preferred method of uh, harvesting autogenes uh, from a technical perspective?
1: Yeah, for like smaller cases, I usually just harvest it from the area from scraper. Yeah, I, I use I before I make the access window, I use usually trim down the bone with a scraper. So if you start, if I start with maybe. Three millimeter cortical bone that I'm going to do the window. I, I scrape it down to a millimeter or something. I am also Take usually if I have can go back to the tuberosity. I take take both from there. This is for the small cases. If it's a bigger case, I usually take it from the retromolar area in the in the lower gym. Okay, and I'm, I'm, I'm now, for many many years, I, I'm using the piezo surgery for for the sinus grafting and for and I also use it to take the block graft. It, it goes quite fast, and for the patient, at least if you leave the if you leave the mucosa on the inside attached, then it doesn't seem to be a big big trauma for the patient to take a relatively big block of bone from there, and then I grind it down to mm-hmm. use it in the sinus.
0: Okay. And in terms of your particle size for your um, other substitute, any preference, large, small? I think it has been looked in the literature, but um, when it comes to your personal preference.
1: Uh, yeah, the, I, I'm, I'm just sometimes when you when you're lecturing about bone augmentation, people ask you, you know, do you know this kind of crafting material or this crafting material? And I Unfortunately, I have to admit that I have basically most probably for 98% of my cases only use one crafting material. And that happens to be bios. And the reason is, that of course, that it is, of course, much better research than everything else you have available and looking at the beautiful histological images from from professor bossart it, it's so obvious that how well integrated it is in the in the new bone and i always uh, prefer the the smaller particles the the 0.25 mm. to um, and uh, it it's so nice just to just to look at them in the histological slides and if we I, I maybe want to make one comment because I was just lecturing about it today here in Geneva, how to evaluate grafting materials. So from a scientific point of view. So if you if you see uh, someone uh, promoting their grafting material, they sometimes they they talk about that if if you use this crafting material, the survival of implants in in sinuses is is great. You have seen that, I suppose. The survival of implants in in sinuses has a lot to do with residual bone height. So if you want to have a great outcome, then don't choose cases with one millimeter residual bone. Then it's more difficult. Then the second thing that is often presented is the if you use this crafting material, the bone to implant contact is going to be good, but the bone to implant contact has nothing to do with the grafting material, it is purely related to the quality of the implant surface. Then the next thing that is usually presented is the amount of uh, newly formed bone and you know that you, you If you make space, you will get new bone. So that's, of course, nice to have new bone, but this is not what you should really look for. Then comes the fourth uh, thing that is usually presented. That is the dropping. In the old days, we to get rid of the of air, but today, at least before, we, that we we are very happy just to have it there, to make space. But then comes the real issue that almost no one is presenting, that you should evaluate. I'm not going to ask you what it is, but you know, pretend that I ask you, but because we are not next to each other here, and that is what we should always evaluate with grafting materials: is the bone-to-grafting material. Uh, contact. So you take you take in the histological slide you take the outline of the residual grafting material and how much of it is covered with bone because we have grafting materials on the market that will give you new bone formation they will give you volume but you can easily see on the histological slide that the bone has zero interest in the grafting material. it just grows because there is space, but it doesn't grow along uh-huh. with the craft uh-huh. particles. But so basically, this is the only interesting evaluation of crafting material from my point of view.
0: How active the actual material is and not inactive in yeah. the space.
1: Yeah. Does it crawl from one particle to the next and it covers it and then it goes to the next one? Then you can really see that the bone cells, the osteoblasts, they, they are. They, they like this material, they use it to, to grow or to climb, basically.
0: conductivity, on. yes. So
1: and long speech about the,
0: important Important elements, though, important elements, because um, these are actually clinical decisions you have to make. Material selection is part of the process uh, for a successful case. When it comes to um, staging the placement uh, in relation to the to the augmentation procedure, I mean, the data shows that uh, as, lo- as, as long as your, your implant can be stable during placement, whether you do a simultaneous augmentation or stage augmentation, there is no difference. Um, uh, how do apply, How do you apply this principle in your practice? Uh, do you select a specific type of implant just to ensure you have a greater stability? Do you have a, a threshold of minimum millimeters of residual height where you wouldn't attempt at all just to engage the implant? What is your strategy on that? So
1: my strategy has changed a little bit over the years. In this respect, I used to do almost everything one stage and we were using I was using the maybe the straw tissue level implant with this tulip shape and on this tulip neck even with like one millimeter of residual bone if you had a hard cortical bone the implant was basically stuck sitting on this neck. and. Uh, so we got primary stability and we even for fun, sometimes we did the RFA analysis. One millimeter bone and everything just the grafting material and then we did the RFA and what do you think, what was the outcome? We got like 70 or more because like it was so, sitting so tight in the cortical bone because the, the way RFA works is it is a little bit like a tuning fork. If you have a hard surface, it gives you the tone. So we got we got really high values from like implant sitting in no bone. But then there the, was the problem with this tulip shape. If it's sticking out of the bone and you have a, for example, a full denture on top of it, then uh, it's prob- it's a little bit problematic to control the micro movement during the healing. And uh, so if it's if I want to go and do one stage with extremely little residual bone, then I would prefer uh, this shape of implant. I mean, it doesn't have to be Straumann. It can be whatever it's with a neck like coming out that gives you the primary stability. But then the patient, we have to be extremely careful if the patient is wearing a denture or a, Removable partial denture or something. So to get away from that problem of of the provisionals pushing on the implant, then you would move more over to like a bone level type of implants, could be, you know, whatever. But then for that, I would say I would most probably need at least three millimeter residual bone to be to feel comfortable with a. But I would never use an implant that is purely cylindrical. So, like you, most of those uh, bone level type, they are they are cylindrical and slightly tapered when it comes to the neck. So, what I would at least avoid are like purely cylindrical implants. When when you go down to those uh, three four millimeters residual bone. Or even less, but because of uh, we are treating a lot of dentulous patients and they want to wear the dentures. So I think if I would take the percentages I was doing two states ten years ago and today I'm doing more two states today than I did ten years ago, and it has uh, almost is purely related to the. To the provisionalization, basically, the denture.
0: which makes a lot of sense, of course. That's that's very interesting. And and um, another question related to the to your expertise on restorative uh, elements. How do you feel about restoring implants placed in grafted sinuses? I mean. Um, do you have a specific protocol? Are you, are you more prone to splinting implants, especially if you have um, neighboring implants? Are you confident that uh, having as a long um, implants, distant implants, single units, um, independent crowns, and which, which factors dictate your decision? Uh,
1: like in general, in one of the analyses we did many years ago we saw that the prevalence of screw loosening was significantly higher for implant supported signal crowns compared to implant supporting like bridges or like multi-unit and so after we got that outcome i started in the molar area if i have two implants next to each other doesn't have to be grafted sinus. Just in general, I I always splint them, just to you know get rid of this rotation issue. So I connect them so they can rotate. And uh, so my idea of splinting them has not would not have anything to do with uh, sinus grafting. It has to do with reducing the possibility of screw loosening. And then my uh, dear friend and tutor Professor Lang would always say, but it's more difficult to clean them if yes. they are And then I will argue, I mean, how do you clean between two implants? You clean with interdental brushes. And usually those patients, we train them to use interdental brushes, not dental flosses. And then my question usually back if if you have have you tried when you have two implant crowns next to each other with a really tight contact to go through with a a dental floss it's not so easy because they they don't move like like the teeth so this is like my principle philosophy in the molar area if i have two implants next to each other then i splint them so now, comes the question, now we're in the sinus. If I have two implants there, I would split them. If I have three implants there, I would split them. If I have Stefan Lundgren placing the implants and I have four implants there, I would split two and the other two because I don't really see the reason for splitting all four of them because my idea is it has more to do with a rotation issue. So you don't need to split four to, to, to cover that issue. So it's about, it's about technical complications. It's not about that. I have no faith in the craft.
0: Okay. That's, that's, that's pretty clear. But how about smokers though? Because you looked into that as well as part of your, uh, of your study.
1: Yeah. That's a smoking issue. (laughs) Do you know what is the, uh, what is the best motivation for a smoker to
0: quit smoking? And you, you share with me your strategy, your,
1: I was <laughs> talking about the, the, literature about like, if you want to, if you want to motivate someone to stop smoking, uh, it seems to be that the best motivation is if they have a heart, heart attack. Then they realize, okay, I might have to do something about this. But you can also very often use uh, implant surgery, bone augmentation, as a motivation for the patients. So I really, I really push my patients quite hard towards uh, quit smoking bef- before the, this kind of procedure, and I've had several cases where I'm successful uh, but then the issue is how strict should we go in Iceland fortunately we we have relatively few smokers so it's not a not a big issue there but I would say I like when I was in Bern for example professor Buser had a very strict approach. Don't place the implants in smokers. I think uh, can we be that strict? That, that's a question. But I still, for example, I would not do like lateral bone augmentation with with block grafts in smokers. To do two states sinus floor elevation with one. When I talk about different issues, like or maybe using cancer, it in the sinus two, two, three millimeters, then I I, I try to follow the protocol of pain, convince them to reduce smoking uh, two weeks before the surgery, uh, two months after the surgery to a maximum of five cigarettes a day. Uh, that is a little bit how I approach the patients. But I think uh, we know it's a risk, but it's not like clear black and white. You know, Can we just say, no, okay, we don't treat smokers. But I would, if it's a complicated bone augmentation procedure, I would not do it in heavy smokers, definitely not.
0: I think the, the fair approach in this case is to acknowledge the risk, which has been documented also in the literature. In fact, I think your, your study, uh, uh, found higher annual failure rates for smokers, even though that didn't reach the level of statistical significance, but that might be an element of the um, number of included studies and so on. But uh, I think, yes, you, you always discuss that with the patient, um, the risk and the possible uh, complications that may care for like that. And since we talk about complications, uh, I think uh, for all the, um, uh, students who, who get into the sinus business, and then when we discuss with the patient, you always go through the risks, the benefits, the alternatives, and as part of the risks, we, we tend to talk about the, the possible scenarios of um, a membrane perforation, which is not uncommon. In, in your study, the mean, I think, was around 20%, 19, 19.5%. And when it comes to the infection, um, three down to 3%, uh, 2.9%, I think, in your study, and the you know, possibility of graft failure. Um, uh, I think that perforation is not a huge problem unless uh, it is really big, over one centimeter, which in most cases, I believe we, we, most of us abort the procedure, playing being on the safe side, even though there are ways to, to manage that. But when it comes to infection, what is your experience with infection? Uh, is, it, uh, is it something that you frequently or see or how do you manage it? How do you deal with it? Do you save it? Is, it? is it possible to save the case when you see a proper sinus infection early?
1: No, I think we at least we are using uh, antibiotic prophylaxis after those uh, bone augmentation procedures and It seems to be that the risk of infection is relatively low, I mean according to the literature, the risk of total infection and losing the graft was uh, less than 2 percent. And fortunately, I haven't really been uh, struggling a lot with cases like that. I have had one case where the patient was hospitalized much later, you know, when and there was a problem in the sinus and they almost uh, removed the whole graft and implants and everything. And I, But the, the patient contacted me and so I opened the sinus and uh, just to double check if everything was okay and there, there was this uh, yeast infection in the sinus. It was and I think that's something uh, that might be even more frequent than we Than we think, because when I opened it up and I cleaned everything out, and and, uh, so it it was not like a typical infection. It was this yeast infection in the in the sinus. Otherwise, yeah, most probably, if if everything goes down the drain, then you have to open up again and you have to clean everything out, or you have to get. You know, throat specialist to help you out. But yep. it, I think then the best approach is, is really to go in, and then you are not thinking a lot about whether perforating or not. You just have to go in or, or, and clean everything out.
0: Yeah, this this is this is my personal experience as well with uh, a couple of cases where infection took place. Um. Nowadays, patients want quick treatment um, and uh, as little discomfort as possible, which means that with modifications of the existing techniques, uh, people are attempting to go through the transalveolar type of lifts with different tools and instruments and, um, and different waiting times and different materials. Do you see that trend? Also, on top of that, we, we tend to see more of a trend of graftless options uh, being elected in, in implant treatment planning. So, implant placements in a way to bypass the sinus cavity, uh, either the classic on 4 approach or we can see uh, a spike in case of pterygoid implants, zygomatic implants as possible scenarios just to avoid more invasive, other more invasive procedures. So... Is is sinus augmentation, knowing now that the short implants can work to some extent, at least up to the six millimeter length, we have some reasonable, you know, short, medium term data in terms of their survival. Is sinus augmentation uh, a treatment modality, surgical treatment modality that is going to be applied less and less in the future? What, What do you think? Just to summarize also all the discussions that we have so far.
1: No, I think we have to be, when, when we talk about short implants, we have to be a little bit critical on the studies because uh, most of them, they mix short implants in the lower jaw, the upper jaw and split it and, and things like that. So uh, for me, the, the only interesting studies about short implants are implant, are studies looking at implants six millimeter or shorter in the posterior maxilla supporting a single molar and we have a couple of those studies and the outcome is not as promising as for the rest of the short implant studies. So, at least in in my treatment uh, philosophy, because it's if you have six millimeter residual bone, it is so easy to augment the sinus a little bit through the alveolar process to place eight to 10 millimeter implants. So I, I prefer to go for a bit longer implants and do the augmentation procedure. And uh, so my minimum length there is still eight millimeters because it's an easy procedure. And you can even like, if you're only thinking of gaining one, two millimeters, you can maybe even do it without grafting material. But then comes the, the case is like, uh, when you place the implant like in this oblique way, or in this direction usually, and uh, that is for for many cases not a not a stupid uh, treatment plan to to use oblique implants there uh, to support the the, the distal uh, part of your restoration. So I've. I, I keep that like in my clinic as a treatment option, and then I am avoiding the sinus for those cases, just to because I can comment on it here. To do the same thing in the lower jaw makes absolutely no sense to me, because if you want to place an implant in an oblique way above the uh, foramen uh, above the foramen mand- then how much bone do you think you need? If you are going to place a four millimeter implant like this, you need about seven millimeters because you have the diameter of the implant. So if you have seven millimeters, why don't you just place a straight six millimeter implant? And, and from the research, the short implants are working quite well in the lower jaw, even though they are not as good in the upper. I, if I go back to my personal experience, and I, I would, I would I am doing more cases now transalveolar than I did 10 years ago. And now I'm looking a little bit about it in a little bit different way. We used to just say you, to, do, to go transalveolar, you have to have five millimeter residual bone. But today we, we have the, the three dimensional radiograph. So I look at the shape. And if I see that I have a nicely contained part of the sinus where I want to elevate, I have maybe one tooth here a tooth here and I only have one tooth missing. So I know uh, this part is holding up the membrane here. And then it's not a very wide sinus. It's a relatively narrow sinus. Then I would just go with my piezo uh, surgical uh, machine through there and, and just slowly lift the whole thing. So I'm I'm going, I'm, I'm doing more trans-alveolar today than I did 10 years ago. And it might be a little bit like, if you think about the surgery, like just all over the place, the knee surgery, and, and it used to be a big open surgery. Now they do it with scopes through small holes. And if you can through the alveolar process in a controlled way, elevate the membrane, then you should do it that way. Then you should, and then you have the new bone growing in from all sides. If you remove the the lateral window, then you don't have bone coming from there. Then you you, you lose one part of the new bone formation. So I'm. I think uh, I can only talk for myself. I'm not doing fewer sinus grafting, and I'm 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 doing more two states and more
0: trans-alveolar than i used to do yes that's uh, that's also interesting and i think that relates also to your experience so you know the big picture now you can sort of become also more minimally invasive and more targeted um what can I say, uh, we can only help, uh, thank you for your contribution to this topic. It, it was really, really uh, a great pleasure for me. It was really enlightened going back to the original studies, uh, uh, having your views on the different topics on sinus augmentation. I'm sure the, the, the people who are gonna watch this uh, recording are gonna really enjoy it as well. Um, any, any final comments from you on your side? to the young clinicians, to the young researchers on this field before we close officially the session?
1: Yeah, I think uh, uh, when you start to do uh, procedures like crafting, whether it's transalveolar or whether it's a lateral approach and so on, you always have to be they're very careful about that, you can also address the complications. Because it's a, uh, it's not nice to start to do something, you run into problems, so you cannot solve the problems. So, I think, uh, because some people are maybe more careful and other are less careful. But, you know, you. You really should, if you are if you are planning to work with implants in, in, in your professional life, those are really techniques that you should try to master. But just go slowly and, and find a good tutor that is helping you, slowly developing your skills in, in this techniques. The problem of some of those techniques are they are a bit like you have to have the, the feeling for what you're doing, and to get the feeling, you have to do it. That's sometimes a, a little bit, you know, a steep learning curve, but I would, I think we have really good materials, we, we have good techniques, we know step by step what to do, what not to do. So, yeah, I just wish you all the best uh, augmenting the sinuses because that's the topic of our interview.
0: Thank you for the message. Ferit, thank you for your time. Uh, It was a pleasure again, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to meet uh, soon in one of the future theology events. Thank you. All all the best, all the best. Thank you. Generation Topic a podcast by the Osteology Foundation